This is Witch Hassle. Let's get to work. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Witch Hassle, the show about the work of witchcraft and answering listener questions about everything witchy, occult, weird, and wild-eyed. I'm coming to you on Christmas Eve here in the great state of Maine, which you'd think would be kind of a winter wonderland, but it's mostly, there, there just isn't a great deal of snow about, so you see a lot of dead leaves forming a carpet around the trees, and that's still, I think, on theme for the winter solstice and Christmas, both of which in some ways are about, you know, the triumph of death that allows us to usher in the new beginnings of life. You know, the darkest day of the year being the day before things get just a little less dark. Though I am very fond of that old Mao quote, it's always darkest right before it gets completely black. We have a good show for you today. Um, It's mostly going to be my interview with Leon Calafiore, who is an elder statesman of the New York magical community, the person behind the big book of magic, and also a writer for Out in Jersey magazine. We also have astrological elections from Frank Civilli that are coming up early in the new year, so be sure to watch out for those. But before we get to all that, you know, we should really talk about the big astrological event that's happening technically in two days, though basically tomorrow there's going to be an eclipse, a solar eclipse coming up around Christmas. And eclipses are are interesting magical moments because, you know, historically they were thought of as either calamities in and of themselves or as portents of calamities. But there's, you know, an alternative idea that maybe eclipses, because they are so powerful, they are things that you should, as a, as a wizard or as a magician or as a witch or however you want to identify yourself, there's something that you should try to work and harness and take advantage of. And there is a certain amount of, I would argue, disagreement on this point. Most of the magic folk that I interact with on a regular basis, the folks that I, that I you know, personally like, and deeply respect and revere, seem to be of the camp of, this is bad, don't try to do any magic that is not perhaps remedial and trying to to soften the blow of the eclipse during the eclipse. You know, hunker down, this is a time to take a moment in the house and, and, and not go anywhere or do that much. But there are other schools of thought around that. So if you if you want to ignore that warning, which, you know, classic witchcraft thing to do is to ignore warnings. Or maybe not. I I mean, there's so many warnings against witchcraft. So I suppose if you're doing it, you are ignoring warnings. Anyway, if you want to try to do something with the eclipse, there are conceivably options. One of those that I, of course, am not endorsing at all, but it's a thought, is the idea of instead of, you know, there's a common practice of making lunar water, trying to charge water with the power of the moon. And I found someone called Shield underscore Girl 
who apparently uploaded a Book of Shadows that she says has been running in her family for some period of time uh, to Wattpad. And there she has a right for making solar lunar water during an eclipse. The idea being that you would get the power of both large celestial bodies and also it would have both masculine and feminine energies if you're into that whole gender binary thing. So... You know, there's a thought, and that's easy enough to find if you if you look up solar, lunar water, Wattpad, and shield underscore girl. And, you know, there's another school of thought that this is the time for breaking curses and releasing yourself from patterns and, you know, skulking about the internet for that sort of thing. You know, I, you, you find, I think, variations on setting an intention and visualizing, you know, the curse withering or being released in some way. Though, if you want to go super old school with breaking curses, here is a method of breaking enchantment from the Greek magical papyri, which are, I believe, oh goodness, now I've just forgotten. I would say they're from around the second century CE, but here's a charm to break an enchantment. Taking a three-cornered shard, or sherd, which I think is the favorite archaeological term for shards, from a fork in the road, pick it up with your left hand and inscribe it with murd ink and hide it. And here's the thing that you inscribe it with. Astrelos, Trelos, dissolve every enchantment against me, then say your name, for I conjure you by the great and terrible names which the winds hear and the rocks split when they hear it. And then you are to write seven symbols on the shard, and they look like the following. One, a Greek capital, Upsilon, uh, like a Y with sagging arms, with small circles at all three ends. Two, an X with small circles on the ends. Three, a squared off U with small circles at the ends of the arms. Four, a line inclined to the right with a small right angle bend to the right at the end. Small circles on both ends. Five, a line inclined to the right, small circles on ends but slightly to the left. Six, arc or rounded L from upper left to lower right, circles on ends. Seven, an A with circles on its feet. And that's it. That's the charm. Write that out, bury it, and you sh could be good to go, should be good to go, according to the Greek magical papyri. There's also another school of thought that says that this is a time for encountering and working with the underworld of things and essentially exercising yourself of your own fear of death. And this is something I found from a person called Shirley two feathers and if you want their page feel free to dm me and I'll, I'll send you a url but you know the other big school of thought i think is that if eclipses are bad and they're powerful and they're maybe unpredictable in their energy or if they are predictable the only prediction you can make is bad things will happen then the magic you ought to be doing is magic really to just remediate that to uh to try to limit its negative effects and um a rather interesting method of doing that that i came across in uh, a blog post by Daniel Harms where he was just tearing apart a book on papal magic that he despised was one that was done by Tommaso uh, Camperiella, which was a 17th century astrologer on behalf of Pope Urbane. And what he did 
is really, you know, it sounds like at first blush the sort of thing that might be outside of the financial means of your average, you know, millennial wizard or boomer sorcerer, but I think it's something you could really, you know, if you adapt it a little bit, you could really, you could do it on a budget, I think. And the idea was that, you know, if the heavens portended doom, if the placement of the various astrological bodies uh, were bad, then, you know, just get a new sky, make a new sky. So, um, Campanella made an artificial sky indoors for the Pope with two torches representing the sun and moon, and then candles representing the other five classical planets, you know, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. And apparently the, you know, he put them in placements that would be beneficial and then sealed the room and used various elements, including stones and incense and music and drinks to sort of bring in or uh, perhaps just seal the place with the characteristics of the beneficial planets and their powers and their auspices. So, you know, there's a notion as well. For something a little less involved in making an artificial sky, there's also a good remediation right for dealing with eclipses from sphere and sundry that i will put in the show notes but to give you a kind of short version of it um it involves in part taking a salt bath so maybe consider just doing that um if you want to go through the full right i'll put a link in the show notes but you know christmas isn't just you know the time of this coming eclipse the other sort of, I mean, there, there are all these sort of significances and we can sort of look at the pagan history of all this with Yule, etc. But we would be remiss if we did not mention also that the, some of the magic around Christmas has to do, of course, with the three magi, the three kings who did some form of astrology to find the Christ child and present him with gifts, etc. in the classical story. And there is a long history of people working with the three magi to do magic, sort of in a kind of, you know, necromancy to call upon old dead sorcerers for help or guidance. Uh, and there's a great book on this, uh, The Gift of the Magi by Dr. Alexander Cummins, who I bring up in part because I would love to have him on a future episode, but also because he is going to be doing a Foundations of Geomancy class starting in the new year that you may want to avail yourself of. It's a five-week webinar on early modern English geomancy starting on the 9th of January, and you can find out about that by going to wolf-and-goat.com slash services slash geomancy. Um, and, you know, geomancy, if you're not familiar with it, it's interesting. It's a, it's a kind of divination that was all the rage in Renaissance Europe. It was extraordinarily popular and it's fun because it 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 combines the sort of sortilege that you might find in say tarot or maybe the I Ching with a certain astrological component so if you're a big astrology nerd I think this is something that you might be interested in um, as a form of divination and if you're a big divination nerd it's a form of divination so there you go uh, get in on that and it's also could be useful for certain kinds of magical activity or magical remediation. So, uh, you know, if you're interested in checking out that class, that's at wolf-and-goat.com slash services slash geomancy. So be sure to check that out, and hopefully I'll have Dr. Alexander Cummins on at some point in the future to talk about either the Magi or geomancy, or maybe he's got another book coming out where he's doing an edition 
of an old magical grimoire. So uh, maybe I can get him on to chat about that. But that's it for talking about Christmas for the most part, I think, from me. Uh, so let's now have Frank Savilli, who has astrological elections coming up for early January. Here's Frank. Hey, Cooper. Hey, all. I'm Frank Savilli. I do astrology, mysticism, poetry, and divination. I'm based out of Queens, New York, and I'm here to give you some guidance and some elections for working the stars in the weeks ahead. I do Hellenistic and archetypal astrology, I use whole sign houses, and I work with the tropical zodiac. And all of my elections will be from New York City and in Eastern Time. So let's look at the stars. The first election we're going to look at today is for some Mars work. This is going to be your last chance to get in on some Mars and Scorpio, by which I mean he'll literally be transiting out within a few hours of this election. And this election that I've chosen is going to be on Friday, January 3rd, 2020, at 1.45 a.m. Eastern Time. The chart we're looking at has Scorpio Ascendant with the Moon in Aries in the 6th house. We also have the Moon sextile Venus in Aquarius in the 4th house, and the Moon square everything going on in Capricorn in the 3rd house, but most closely squaring Mercury, Jupiter, and the Sun. So this is a good election for bolstering yourself up against detractors, by which I mean people or forces that are trying to keep you oppressed. You can conjure the anger and the frustration you're feeling into a work to either release it or directly channel it in a specific direction. This will also be a good time for works that need to go undetected, as everything will be below the horizon. So the skies will be dark, and so too might your working if you choose to go that way with it. Some ways that this oppression might be manifesting, as an employee, in the form of illness, collective, ancestral, or personal, or in the very words that others have spoken to you, that have lent to your oppression. You can use these words against them, by which I literally mean the very words or actions that have been taken against you. Take your time with thinking this one out. Act slowly. Protection, as always, is important, and so is taking steps to cleanse in the aftermath of workings like this. So do take care. The second election we're going to look at today is for a lunar working. You can do this work on Saturday, January 4th, 2020, at 4.14 p.m. Eastern Time. For this election, we have Cancer Ascendant with the Moon waxing in Taurus in the 11th house. The Moon is sextile the Ascendant, and the Moon is conjunct Uranus in Taurus. We also have the Moon trine Capricorn in the 7th house with all that's going on there. This is a good time to do some healing after the Eclipse, which is going to be happening on Christmas Day, and some of the drama and the fallout that we might experience from the holidays uh, in general or directly as a result of this Eclipse. I see this as a good moment to separate and break from old relations that no longer serve you, or at least breaking from the negative consequences that these interactions might entail. And this can be a twofold working. Release the negative and imbibe the positive. You can release from the obligations and the troubled history of the intimate or the familial, and you can imbibe in the groups of friends and support that you've chosen and found and build those up around you. And I do mean imbibing. Uh, you can do this release work and then meet up with supportive friends, or better yet, host them for drinks. You can collectively heal from any relational holiday drama together, and this might be the right night to do it. And that's all I've got for you this week. So I hope you found this useful. You can find me on Instagram at anti.bishop for commentary or questions. I always welcome discussion and feedback, so feel free to reach out, especially if you have any questions. And I will see you next time.
Thank you so much to Frank. If you want to check him out or send him questions, be sure to go to his Instagram at anti.bishop. And, you know, also, if you want to send questions to the show for our research department to look up, uh, you know, what is the story on this magical thing I've heard about? Is there a magical thing like this? Is uh, what would be a good how-to on doing a spell to achieve this end or, or deal with this thing? You know, just feel free to send those to the show via either the Twitter or Instagram accounts, both at witchhassle or through the form at cooperwilhelm.com slash witchhassle or through our Patreon, which is a nice little place to go if you want to, you know, support the show or something like that. So our next segment is my interview with Leon Calfiore, who is um, the man behind the Big Book of Magic, which is a Facebook group in which he uh, just gives out daily indications of magical information, incredibly useful. Uh, he's uh, an elder statesman of the New York magical community. He writes for Out in Jersey magazine. He's just a really lovely man, so I kind of want to set the scene for you now, if I may. Um, I, you know, I've done a lot of interviews in my time, and a lot of them are, you know, they're, they're very professional. Someone comes into a studio, you chat for a bit, you show up, um somewhere and you skype someone and it's all it's all very formal but leon and interviewing leon was the epitome of experiencing hospitality you know i rode up to his apartment up in the bronx across the street from a cemetery and you know he sat me down and he made tea and we just had like a nice roving chat at this table in his apartment that is just, you know, it's full of books, just bookcases galore. Um, and afterwards, you know, he, we, he showed me some of his favorite metal bands and, and uh, we chatted about astrology for the coming year, etc. But like, I just want you to, to take this interview, not as say someone listening to information, but rather I think it would be best, the best way to get this is to just find a quiet spot, Make yourself a cup of warm tea or whatever beverage it is that you enjoy. And just try to imagine you're sitting at the table with Leon and I. You know, every time that you hear the clink of a teacup, you know, know that that's just a thing that's happening on the table in front of you as well. Every time you hear a sort of soft uh, brushing or scraping noise, that's just Leon um, cleaning the tobacco off the table as he completes rolling another cigarette for himself to chat in, in a casual and friendly manner. So, you know, I really want you to, to listen to this interview and not just benefit as I have from the wisdom and, 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 and knowledge that Leon so freely gives, but also just to feel like, you know, this is a moment of, of quiet companionship or something like that. At least that's that's how I hope it comes through. So, here's me talking to Leon. You were saying earlier that when you were young, you sort of got into paganism in part when paganism or neo-paganism and gay liberation were sort of happening in tandem. Right. The, the magic came first. That was prepubescent, honestly. What was your first delving into it? The first... The first book that was really available at the local bookshop was The Secret Lore of Magic 
by Idris Shah, who was a Sufi scholar. He was commissioned or decided to do a book summarizing uh, medieval grimoires. So that was my first exposure to printed magical texts, and it just opened up the whole world. So I started doing ceremonial work at a ridiculously young age. You had the ballpark. Like, are we talking... We're talking... 10? 12. 12? Oh, my God. Amazing. With no one to discuss it with. Right. Certainly not family and, frankly, not, not friends at the time either. Okay. So um, no major problems. I suggest, kids, you don't try to invoke Astaroth at uh, age 12 when you don't know how to close the circle down. Did, did something happen? Nothing, nothing dramatic happened, but it was a, a good feeling of dread for about six months before it all dissipated. But of course, hitting puberty too, it could have just been a coincidence. Yeah, puberty is the summoning circle none of us can ever really close. Right. So then the second book was Paul Husson, okay. Mastering Witchcraft. Seeing that on the shelf in the local bookstore Money from the paper route went for that real fast, which exposed a whole different, a more folkloric, ad hoc way of doing magical working, since he was quoting from various grimoires, spell books, etc., etc. He was terribly cute then, too. His, the cover photo on the author photo on the back of the, of the paperback certainly didn't hurt either. So when did you start treating this as a kind of, I mean, identity maybe goes too far, but like the idea of really feeling like you're in this, this isn't just a thing you're trying out. This is, this is really going to be you for the long haul. It really goes back to long before seeing any of these texts and reading them and absorbing them. It really goes back to, as I was saying before we started this interview, being the sort of kid that was so taken with Greek and Roman mythology, yeah. it just seemed more a more intriguing world to be in, and why weren't we still in that world yeah. compared to the lip service paid to going to Mass on Sunday or other services, whatever day of the week uh, the neighbors went. So it, it seemed, at least in my own mind, a natural progression from if this is the world that is more appealing and magic became sort of a stepping stone to more fully realize bringing that world into being, living in that world. So when you were engaging in your magical practice, because it sounds like you were doing, you know, high ceremonial magic, some kind of folk stuff. Were you bringing back these myths at all? Were you sort of trying to say hey to Hermes or? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, and very much the same way that it seems people like Jane Harrison and Margaret Murray at Oxford. And frankly, it seems pretty much any college, any of the colleges at Oxford or Cambridge throughout the Victorian and Edwardian era had this desire to bring pre-Christian Europe back, at least into their own lives. Yeah. Um, but that's a, that's a trend that goes all through 
English and German Romanticism, so we're going back to the early 19th century, really. Yeah. It has been, it's been something that's been building in Western culture for a very long time. Of course, all the people that were involved in that had no sense of Afro-Cuban religions or West African religion being a continual and vital spiritual force in those cultures. I think they all realized in the back of their mind in some way that they were, they were trying to revive the dead. And they didn't realize that there were other living rel- traditions that existed, or they thought they were quaint. It's the problem with anthropological studies of the time period. Oh, yeah. So you are initiated into Alexandrian... Wicca, which is a branch started by Alexanders. Um, when did that initiation come? Because presumably you would need to... Are you self-initiated? Or no. You find you no, no, it was actually a, a coven. Uh, didn't last too long, but... How old were you when it started? 16. Okay. And were these just folks from your hometown? or like? Yes. Okay. And so how did you first start breaking through that kind of, that wall of, here's my secret thing that is much stranger than I assume that it is now in terms of normal cultural mores or something like that? How did you first have the bravery to say, hey, this is a thing I'm doing? Well, one, one of the easiest entrees socially, particularly in the peer group, was having also, age 12 was a wonderful age, taking the train into New York, going to the Warlock shop, and buying my first deck of tarot cards. Ah, uh, okay. So, reading, t- throwing tarot for friends was an easy entree to the, oh, what else do you do? Mm. And, of course, it was the late 60s, early 70s, so uh, experimenting with all sorts of things was, at least in the peer group, considered perfectly normal. Right. Well, of course you're, of course you're going to do a love spell, because we're, you know... You're 16. We're 16, and we're getting high, and, and you know, we're, we're listening to uh, Led Zeppelin, and... Uh, of course, of course you're going to do a ritual. And then, of course, Ozzy Osbourne came out with the first Black Sabbath album. Um, So when you when you were in this coven, did you did you feel like the power of doing it with other people really upped the ante or was it just nice not to be on your own? I have found and this is just me personally, seeing the how long most ritual working groups, whether Wiccan or ceremonial or or whatever the particular paths you're experimenting with, don't last too long. Hmm. Personalities, um, hierarchy. One of the great things about being a pagan is, of course, we can completely reject any sort of hierarchical arrangement. It's personal it's a personal quest. We can share information. Yeah. We can, glasses are great. The egalitarian nature of it is, I think, one of the reasons that so many are attracted every year. Yeah. And it's not that, it's not being antisocial. Certainly get together with other friends that pursue the magical arts and talk shop and stuff. 
get helpful tidbits or find out information that one doesn't have. But it's not a matter of someone dictating this is what you should do or this is how you should do it or this is how you should think. There's been tendencies towards that over the last 40 years. In pagan circles, some think that we should be even more organized. I don't think that's a good thing. Then you start being exclusionary. You have to think this way or you don't fit in. You don't belong. Yeah. That weakens the essential joy of experiencing magic and doing magic, in my mind. Yeah. I mean, that's a very reasonable stance to take. Um, so the coven breaks up. Mm-hmm. Very quickly. <laughs> and so you're left you're left on your own again. Was this? But it seems like that probably wasn't terribly disruptive. It wasn't disruptive at all, because at that point, I was also part of a traveling road show. I, wait, what? Go on, wait, I'm sorry, a traveling road show, you say? A traveling road show. We did the county fair circuit between here and St. Louis. It was all friends at school. We had started doing puppeteering uh, in high school. Oh my God, amazing. the, uh, The powers that be liked it rather enough that we actually had grants to tour around the state of New Jersey. And then a friend one day at my very dear friend Toby Grace's house, suggested, you know, it'd be really great to put on a medicine show. We can do it down at the English Town Flea Market. And from that, we ended up building a horse-drawn wagon, a portable puppet stage, made the puppets, wrote all all the dialogue for them, Pulled every trick out of vaudeville that we could. Um, Smith and Dale, Dr. Cronkite routine, clowning, China giveaways. And we put all of our equipment on cobbled together flatbed trailers and such and and hit the road. Okay, so you weren't actually having a horse draw you? We would, we would hire horses to be in parades um, in the towns that we were performing in. Oh, okay. So, how long were you doing this traveling? Three years. That's amazing. And we got really good at it, and did major county fairs, and we're on, on the midway. And uh, I had a tent set up, and I did tarot card readings and uh, and cold readings for whoever walked into the tent in between shows. Amazing. And so, what was what was it like to be going from doing this, you know, either by yourself or with friends, to suddenly doing it in this professional context, but like as a performer? Like, did it did it feel more real in this way, or did it feel less real to be getting paid to do it? As like, did you do like like when you're doing these these readings on the town? Are you wearing like a like a costume and like kind of like a getup? Well, we were in. It was, it was the 70s. Every day was a costume. Amazing. But, but yes, no, of course, I, I was wearing red robes that I had made out of this really horrible polyester double knit Amazing. with a big um, Chinese dragon embroidery in the center of the chest. It, was, it certainly could be seen in, in anime today. I guess I was just ahead of my time. But 
So by the end, of course, also driving ourselves around, I had a, um, what I had to drive was an international harvester bread truck, basically, which had all these cubbies in the back. So I actually brought on the road my burgeoning magical library with me. At that point, what did you have beyond those first two books? The Book of Shadows from Jesse Wicker Bell. Long Lost Friend. Oh, amazing. Okay. Various herbal texts, um, Secret Lore of Magic, uh, Mastering Witchcraft. I was also doing spell work on the road. In a performative sort of way? Or no. Like, you know, no, okay. just as a lot of free time after the shows are over for the day. And, yeah. and just as much time was spent perfecting um, herb lore and gathering plants out in the wild, or at least in other parts of the country. How far afield did you end up going? Was this just Jersey, or is this... St. Like... Charles, Missouri. Oh my gosh. Upstate New York, um, New Hampshire. An, easy, an easier circuit through the center, eastern center of the country. So by the time you were done, do I mean, this sounds almost like a kind of traveling apprenticeship, because you're self-teaching magic and the earth lore. So like by the time all that wraps up, mm -hmm. where do you end up? Back in New Jersey, finishing up college. And uh, then I moved to New York and knew or worked with or bought from fairly much everyone that had a shop at the time in New York City. So Carol Bullzone, who had founded Enchantments, um, in its original location, certainly The Magical Child, and then there was Morrigan's Magic. Then I helped a friend open a shop on the Upper West Side that was called the Zodiac Lounge. Tell, tell me about the Zodiac Lounge. The Zodiac Lounge was a small pagan gathering spot for pagans that were bankers and... Uh, editors of major magazines in the music field. Can you can you name some names, or is this? I prefer not to, entire... just because it's it's uh, it's their privacy. Yeah, that's right. Um, what... People people that would one would know, and and people in their own fields that would be known, and we would do at large parties. So the first party, we actually showed Bell, Book, and Candle, which is where the Zodiac Lounge came from, in a, um, a bar restaurant on the Upper West Side, and we packed it. Amazing. We sent out invitations, and we did newsletters. The highlight for the Zodiac Lounge was the year that we ran the Witch's Ball, which was originally started by Enchantments. Okay. As Carol... And her, uh, her girlfriend uh, passed enchantments on to the next set of owners and moved up to uh, Upper Westchester. The Witch's Ball passed through a few shop owners' hands, including 14th Street Video Haven, which was owned by Artie Haber, which was a video shop, but it was also an occult supply shop. And 14th Street and between 2nd um, and 1st. So, this witch's ball, are we talking like a huge 
year buster soiree or absolutely Cele- celebration of, of, of Samhain, a celebration of Halloween, the year that the Zodiac Lounge, what, that we had done it, we uh, took over Wetlands, which was, for those who weren't around then, was on North Morris Street and was a great alternative music locale. And we filled that place. We had uh, four or five uh, uh, performers. Oh wow! So we're talking what, like fifty people, a hundred people? Um, a thousand. Holy oh, shit! Um, well done. Uh, so at this point, are these folks who are mostly coming because it's big? Like, if you had to like ballpark the percentages, mm-hmm. how many do you think are people who are coming to this because they are pagans which is sort of they're part of they're part of that community and how many are just like it's a cool fun halloween party so they're coming for that i don't know that there's necessarily a difference i love it okay um certainly certainly there was a good percentage of people that uh were not going to go home and uh and scry uh when they woke up in the morning it it's just an indication in the late 80s of how paganism and alternative religion, particularly in the United States, has has embedded itself in, at least in urban centers, general consciousness. Yeah, it's not an unusual thing. It's yeah. not an unu- it's not unusual for a work acquaintance to say that they're doing a love spell or yeah. that they've gone to a shop to get a, They're doing candle work. It, it really has become certainly uh, a part of uh, the fabric of, of urban living. Yeah. What do you think sparked that change? Was it just a slow... It's things move in cycles. Uh, um, much older folks would talk about things like the dawning of the age of Aquarius, which we're not in. Other astrologers would point out that... Uh, the slow movement and permutations of Uranus are affecting these social upheavals and also the social backlashes that we're seeing right now. Yeah. But in the bigger picture, it's just part of, and parcel of, uh, of the 60s generation's lifestyle or emotional choices or commitment pervading all of culture, for good or bad. It was acceptable in a very small, tightly knit, um, somewhat ostracized group of people and now has become common currency. Do you feel as though anything has been lost in it becoming such a sort of widely accepted? Do I feel that something's become lost? Yeah. No. Okay. No. In some ways, I really think this is the golden age. I'd like to think that it can be sustained, that so many people are able to contemplate other spiritualities and to, in their own ways, work on molding reality in their own image to a degree, I think is a good thing. Yeah. I'm not going to go into collective unconsciousness or collective consciousness for that matter. But it is, 
it is a social progression and social movement. Of course, there's a backlash against it. Uh, right. Magic is not for, for lightweights. Of course, I also, we, people my age also grew up before other influences like Charmed. <laughs> we grew up before uh, Silver Ravenwolf. To ride a silver broomstick would not be a reference point for for me. I have it; it's it's there. But it's I guess the only downside is it being occult subjects being so popular. It's all become a little twee. Yeah, I suppose there's a reason for new age shops with crystal holding unicorns. They, as a talisman, they mean nothing to me. But right. But they're they're fun. They're fun, but there's other things that have more resonance that are greater fun. So what what would be a good example of a thing you, you feel like has much more resonance for you that you would go to as opposed to like, you know, the unicorn crystal holder? Well, there's so many for instance, there are so many really good museum reproductions of iconography of various deities. Mm. It's really easy to find if you if you've found a deity or a pantheon or an individual spiritual being that resonates for you. It's really easy to get a good image that you can use as a focal point in your own explorations. Yeah. I promise you, no matter how good you are at manifesting things, a rainbow-colored unicorn is not going to make an appearance on this temporal plane. On the other hand, it's really easy to have a Hindu deity manifest. Did you? So how widely have you sort of looked at different pantheons and tried things out? Like, have you more or less stuck to a small number as your as your central roosts, or are you out there pulling from you know Norse, Hin- Hindu, Chinese, like the whole the whole gambit of things? What really always spoke to me was ancient Greece. Okay. And I didn't know of the existence of the Greco-Egyptian magical texts until um, the University of Chicago's translations of the Greco-Egyptian magical texts came out, and I guess that was about 86. Have they since become the sort of central the central hub of your, your magical practice? Not the central hub, but the source work for the workings that I'll do. Because, well, in the 70s, looking for the real deal... In the 60s and 70s, the, the standard party line, particularly if you were involved in Wicca witchcraft, was that it was a pre-Christian European religion that had a sort of wide reach across continental Europe, and Wicca was a recon- reconstructionist movement trying to bring back that ritual work. That was the... The Ur story, the granny tale. Yeah. And you had various witches saying that their rituals were handed down from their grandmothers, which is why they're called granny tales. They were not. It's bricolage. It was 
taking elements of ceremonial magic and uh, Masonic ritual structure and putting them together into a functional and working whole. But it's a brand new thing. Yeah. And once, once you have the basic structure going, you can add to it in whatever way you wish to. You can bring in herbal lore, natural magic, charms, and spells, and they slot in very well into the ritual structure that was developed in, in modern witchcraft. The thing about magic is that there's only a finite number of structural units of ritual that exist in the human mind. So there's nothing, there's nothing that's so alien to one set of ritual structures that it can't be adapted in. The easiest example, of course, is, is the continuum of um, Afro-Caribbean religions and the degree to which there's synchronization yeah. between saints and not. To, to a Calvinist preacher, they're completely incompatible. To the average person, it's very easy to see how you can synchronize a saint to an Orisha. Yeah. Have you been doing a lot of work in, in Afro-Caribbean traditions? I don't because it's not my background and I, I respect it a great deal and I understand it, but it doesn't, it's not part of my background and I think it would be, for me, it would be assimilationist. Okay. So I don't. I have a great deal of respect for those friends and acquaintances that do follow that path. And I, I appreciate it all the more because it really does have a resonance with their ancestry, culturally or biologically. I don't feel like poaching other people's cultures. Of course. That makes sense. Well, no, but, you know, lots of people, I, for the same reason, while I appreciate Native American spirituality in North America, and again, have friends that have a far better claim to exploring it as a personal faith. I would not, I would not adapt and usurp medicine bags or uh, building a stone prayer wheel or any, any number of things which, I mean, have we not stripped enough from the native peoples, starting with their land? Do we really need to usurp their spiritual culture also? We did a good enough job of that with sending youngsters off to missionary schools in the late Victorian period. So you you alluded a few beats in the conversation ago to sort of around, say, the 1970s, trying to find the real deal. Yes. In medicine. What was that? What was that search like? Do you feel like you, you landed on? Well, it, it's part and parcel of the the mythology of witchcraft at the time. First, you had the pre-Christian survival, which sounded really great. Yeah. Then you had actual texts coming out, which were touted as, as having a certain antiquity to them, and so a certain authority. Yeah. So seeing those in print certainly had a great deal of validation. The fact that it was untrue coming later wasn't disappointing. One gets older and is a better researcher and realizes that this doesn't hold together as a backstory. Yeah. But most new religions do that. Judaism did it. It's in two kings. 
You have Israel under the kings going along for seemingly hundreds of years without knowing that Yahweh was the God of Israel. And then I believe it's during the reign of King Hezekiah. These scrolls are found in the temple and they're brought to the king and they're like, look, look what we've got. This is what we're supposed to be doing, at which point Hezekiah starts destroying all the Canaanite-inspired temples throughout the rest of Judea and Samaria. But it's right there in the text that we were following this faith for hundreds of years, or were we? But it established the spiritual and theological correctness of Judaism in that period. In the same way, our Wiccan stories establish the validity of the path as being valid. It's just the reason for it being valid was an entire myth. So was that sort of the big, the big true nugget? Was that sort of the nature of, of validity through an establishing myth? Or was there something else that you found that felt more... Sort of, you could you could back it up with records that actually felt like they hung together more persuasively. Well, magic magical activities working outside of a particular theological structure yeah. or philosophical structure, it didn't really have any effect because the magic worked. So the outer shell in which it occurs is engaging and it certainly focuses you but it's not necessary to actually engage in magical activities the core of magic has nothing to do with the theology it it has to do with self-awareness and being able to have influence over things at a distance and where does that influence come from well that we don't know there was a big drive to in some circles to utilize um, quantum mechanics. Yeah, the whole chaos. Exactly. Thing. Which we don't we don't have a good explanation. I, it's not self delusional. Reality is perception. Um, there's enough tests that have been done to in the lab to show that, and so it's not difficult to understand that you can, by consciousness, have an effect on reality. It's not deciding to do a certain thing. It's deciding to have things physically change over time and space. Mm. And it does seem to occur. And that's not a theology. That's just a different viewpoint of causation. Yeah. So when you sort of developed this understanding, as opposed to maybe previous ones, did you hold on to the trappings of, you know, the external shell to... Oh, absolutely. So you're, you're like, so if you were to do a ritual with, um, let's say, uh, throw some Saturn, I don't know, the god Saturn. All right. In doing that, do you sort of, are you just finding an easier vessel to, to push this idea of, of making something happen? Or is there an independent life to Saturn in that moment as well? couple of points there is no independent life Mm. expand on that everything in reality is interdependent okay this is one of the differences between one of the philosophical differences between for lack of a better phrase established religion 
and the broad umbrella of paganism, or not established religion. All established religions think of deity as outside, as the creator of reality, but outside of it. And the whole broad swath of pagan or, or heathen, whatever terminology you want to use, there is not necessarily articulated, but there is behind it all a realization or a conception that nothing is outside of reality, whether you can perceive it or not which is one of the bases of most magical forms, that since nothing is outside of reality and everything is interconnected, all the individual parts or how you perceive the parts can influence each other. Distance doesn't matter. Time doesn't matter. Yeah. In working with a deity or a concept of deity like Saturn, all deities, all aspects of reality are multivalent. They're not an either-or. They're all of the above. If you think of Saturn, well, Saturn's slightly different than Kronos is in Greek mythology and in Greek ritual. But even if you're using the sort of classic Roman conception of Saturn, Saturn can be dark, melancholic. Saturn can also be the darkness of the womb, the insistence to stop what you're doing and really focus. So just exploring the possibilities of Saturn Kronos in any sort of magical workings, and then of course adding in astrological aspects and movements, you have a whole world of possibilities to work with a deity form that some might perceive as just making you sad or depressed or melancholic. So there's that multivalency available, and that's true in any conception of deities. Right. But you're sort of getting out of that work what you bring into it conceptually. Like, if you're working with Saturn, the womb version of Saturn, that's what you're going to get out of it. Right. It's not, you're not going to get the same sort of result that you would working with Hermes. Saturnine energy doesn't allow for a transition from one place to another. It doesn't facilitate crossing from one place to another. It either brings bounty in place, or it makes you stay in place and makes you focus, or really get upset because you're not paying attention that this is the time for you to focus. But at the same time, that is, you're, you know, you're saying that now, but at the same time, if you sort of wanted to work with Saturn through... Because, I mean, like, these these various valences of Saturn are coming to us. We're sort of receiving them from a long history. But are we are we bound by those? Or could we say, you know, Saturn actually does have this, this sort of Hermes crossing quality because we are, in a way, choosing Saturn as a vessel for something else? I understand your point. I think that there are certain inherent qualities in whatever it is that we're actually dealing with. Okay. And they don't have other qualities. Okay. You could think of them as elements, practically. You can make certain combinations work. Some are harder than others. Some will never happen. Yeah. Yes, iron can exist as a gas in the right circumstances. Ones where we will never be anywhere near. One would hope. Right. 
So there's, for lack of a better phrasing, there's spheres of influence. They're not necessarily discrete. They're fuzzy around the edges, but they can each only get pushed so far in one direction or another. They have a natural propensity to one set of things. Okay. So thank you so much to Leon for taking the time to chat with me. Check out his regular columns in Out in Jersey and the Big Book of Magic Facebook page. Um, So, didn't put the entire interview in the show. If you want to hear the whole interview, uh, you should pop on over to Patreon, and I'm going to make that whole interview available to the uh, $5 and up subscribers who have a fancy name on the Patreon page that I've completely forgotten. I think it's Leopold the first level of subscription because uh, he was a great benefactor of magic and the magical arts. Um, but anyway, that's our that's our show. So thank you so much for, for popping in. I hope you have a very good Christmas if you celebrate it. And if you don't celebrate it, I hope you have a very good uh, December 25th. And if you are in the situation that I imagine a number of magical folks who have gone home are where you don't celebrate Christmas, but you are deeply embedded in a group of people who do. I hope that goes well in its own right. Uh, this has been Witch Hassle. Uh, thank you so much for listening and good luck with the work ahead. Also, our theme music was performed by Sebastian Baversham and recorded by Edward Lee. I am Cooper Wilhelm. This has been Witch Hassle. Witch Hassle.